Okay, we're going to start out today with the 118th Psalm. This is a Messianic Psalm that uh, look forward to this particular day in history, which is uh, Palm Sunday. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come to meet here and to praise you on this wonderful day, Palm Sunday, remembering the day that Jesus Christ rode a donkey into Jerusalem and was hailed as the King of Israel and the Son of David. And the people awaited in anticipation for the coming kingdom, but they missed their Lord. And even to this day, they're struggling to find him. But we who have called on him understand who he is and what he means to us. And we thank you for that. And we do pray for Israel, that their eyes will be opened and that the time will be soon. And until that time, we just want to continue to praise you, to give you the glory and the praise and the honor that you are due for all that you do in our lives. You give us happiness in our hearts. You fill our table with food and you give us plenty each and every day. You've given us a beautiful blue day, a warm day to meet here and to uh, just hear your word preached and to exalt you. And may we do that with all of our soul and all of our minds in the days ahead. May we just be servants of you and just give you the glory that you're due. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, I've got a uh, passage to read you from Isaiah chapter 56 today. Thus says the Lord, keep, right, keep justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, 
the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come to devour. devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving the slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which have never had enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. The word of the Lord from Isaiah. And I guess I'll do one more reading before we get into the sermon today. I wrote this down. Uh, it's particularly pertinent to what uh, we're going to be talking about today. It's from the book of Zechariah. And it's chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like the lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with the whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So... How great is the Lord's faithfulness to Israel. After all of these years, he's brought them back to the land and uh, he's ready to fulfill his promises to his people there. And we look forward to that wonderful day. Today is Palm Sunday of 2012 in the year of our Lord. In the week ahead, we will be remembering and celebrating the most monumental life in human history. And especially we will be celebrating the cross of Jesus Christ. It is this moment which really, really happened in the stream of time and human existence 
which allowed for the reconciliation of an infinite God to finite and fallen man. Because man is fallen in Adam, in relation to our creator, we are infinitely fallen, both in time and in physical existence. In time, the separation is eternal, which means that it began at the moment that Adam fell in the garden and it will last until the ages of the ages. As long as time exists, this gap will exist. In physical existence, our fall means that no matter what we do, and no matter how much of it we do, we cannot do enough to reconcile ourselves to this infinite God. As long as we are here, this gap will exist. It is an infinite gap between us. Even if we make our own life a sacrifice, or if we sacrifice one of our own children to God, it could not bridge this infinite gap. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to go over Jesus' last week of life leading right up to the cross. But before we do that, before we get to the cross, I want to talk about the incarnation of Jesus first. Without the incarnation, what happened at the cross makes absolutely no sense. And it does away with the possibility of the greatest moment in all of human history, which is the resurrection. But that really isn't right, is it? Is the resurrection the greatest moment in human history? Or can we put it above the cross? That's a question that we need to look at. Which one of these occurrences is greater? The answer is actually found in Paul's letter to the Romans. In chapter 4, he says there, Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, and he was raised because of our justification. In this verse, Romans 4.25, I believe it is, it is clear that Paul saw the cross and he saw the resurrection as a single whole. And despite being two occurrences, they are so inextricably tied together that they become one great act of God. And without understanding the incarnation, we cannot truly understand that act, the cross and the resurrection. But once we see what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ, we can begin to grasp the immensity of this amazing event, which is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Because today is Palm Sunday, our text verse today will come from John chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. May God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the God-man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's the angel's announcement to Mary in Luke 1.35 that she will have a son even though she's a virgin. We've been in Genesis for the past couple of months here at Church on the Beach and right there in the very beginning of Genesis in chapter 1 was a pattern which was set down by God for us to understand and to know why things happen, why they are the way they are. Plants reproduce after their own kind. Fish 
reproduce after their own kind. Animals reproduce after their own kind. And man reproduces after his own kind. Each living thing takes on the traits of the life that it came from. In the case of Jesus, he took on the traits of his mother and he took on the traits of his father. His mother, Mary, is a human being and so Jesus is fully man. But his father is God and so Jesus is fully God. In theological terms, this is called the hypostatic union. It's a big term that I define this way. Jesus Christ is fully God, deity, united with full humanity without any intermingling or separation of these qualities. In him there is no change or division of any kind completely and forever. He is the finite united with the infinite, the point where God fellowships with man. That is Jesus Christ our Lord. We saw just a little bit later in Genesis that man fell in the Garden of Eden. It was in the same chapter, chapter 3, that we had our first glimpse of the incarnation. It was verse 15, and it heralded the work of the coming Christ. God promised that the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent's work. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we saw that Adam's two sons, Cain and Abel, had inherited Adam's fallen state. And then in chapter 5, it said that Adam begot his son Seth in his likeness, meaning that Seth was fallen. Because things reproduce after their own kind, every human being that is born from Adam is born in this fallen state. The gap is there, it is infinite, and we cannot do a thing about it. But God can. God promised that the seed of the woman, not the man, would destroy the work of the devil. But life transfers through both parents. There is no such thing as asexual reproduction in human beings. In a preview of what's coming up in chapter 17 of Genesis, we're going to read these words which God spoke to Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham, the man of faith and of the chosen line of God, to show us what God was going to do through Jesus Christ. You see that sin transfers through the Father. And so circumcision was given as a sign that the sin nature was being cut away from man. By cutting the very organ through which sin is transferred, it was symbolically pointing to the cutting away of sin itself. If you understand that premise, then you can see what it really points to. It points to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If sin transfers from the Father, and Jesus' Father is God who is sinless, then the incarnation means that despite being fully man, because of his human mother, Jesus was born in a sinless state. There was no transfer of sin to him. Adam, who could not save himself, and each of us who has come from Adam are unqualified to meet the demands of an infinitely holy, righteous, just, and truthful God. Let me say it again. The gap exists, and the gap is infinite. But then we see Jesus, a man who was born qualified, but 
Being qualified does not mean that he would prevail. It only means that he is capable of doing so. He not only had to be qualified, he had to complete the task that was set before him, and he fully intended to do so. God gave the people of Israel the law. After receiving the law, they were told, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But no one could live by those laws. No one was capable of prevailing over that law that they were given. They had already inherited Adam's sin. And so to them, the law was broken even from birth. And so there is a need for something more. Jesus, not inheriting Adam's sin, he went through the same temptations that Adam did. We went through that in a sermon quite a while ago. The devil tempted him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And each time he beat the devil at his own game. Therefore, if he could also keep the precepts of the law, which was given to Israel, then he would not only be qualified, he would prevail. He set his eyes on the task that was set before him, and he proclaimed it to the people of Israel when he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that leads us to our second thought today, which is the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. The four Gospels record Jesus' life. That is why they are there. They record that through his entire ministry, he kept the demands of the law perfectly. He was born sinless and he never sinned. Getting angry at sin, for example, is not sinning. And yes, Jesus got angry at sin. In fact, the Bible commands us to be angry for certain reasons. It says in the book of Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give a place to the devil. Not letting the sun go down on something is an idiom, which means that we are never, never, never to stop doing that thing. God expects us to never let the sun go down on our wrath at sin. When Jesus was angry, it was because of sin. When we let our anger control us, that is when sin steps in. But when we control our anger, especially at sin, we please God whose anger at sin is as strong as his love for each one of us. Jesus' life is carefully recorded in those Gospels to show us the contrast between him and Adam, and thus between him and each one of us. Every one of us has sinned in our lives, and that is why Jesus is displayed there, is to show us the mirror and to see that our side of the mirror is flawed. We'll start our tour of Jesus' Passion Week right back in chapter 12 of John where we read our text verse from today. As we're going through the timeline or as you're reading the four gospel accounts, there's a very important thing to remember about the different gospel accounts. John is using Roman time, which is basically the same as our modern time. However, other accounts use Jewish time, which is based on the pattern that was set back in Genesis 1-1, or actually 1-2 or 3 but chapter one of Genesis, when it says evening and morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second day. The Jewish day goes from sunset to sunset. If you miss this, then the account gets very confusing and it seems like they're talking about different days or different hours of the day when things are occurring. We're actually going to begin our tour though on the Sabbath, which is before the Sunday, Palm Sunday. This would have been five April of AD 32. Here's what it says. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who, was, who had been dead, 
whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. John tells us that it was six days before the Passover that Jesus came to the home of Lazarus. In obedience to the law, he spent his very last Sabbath before the cross, relaxing in the home of a man he had raised from the dead. He held the power over death, and they had seen it with their own eyes when they saw him raise Lazarus from the tomb. But somehow they missed the significance of that act, because less than a week later, they wept at his tomb. After his time of Sabbath rest, we read about the wonderful events which occurred on Palm Sunday, which happened the next day. This would have been 6 April of AD 32, or five days before the cross of Jesus. Now, when they were drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and he set them on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. What I just read from Matthew is goes on in the account in Matthew to say that it seems like it's the same day that Jesus went in and cleared the temple of the merchants that were gathered there. But this is not the case. You have to go to the book of Mark to understand what happened after he rode into Jerusalem. It says there in Mark, uh, I believe it's chapter 11, verse 11, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. After the exciting events of Sunday, Jesus went to Bethany with his disciples and he spent the night there. Mark shows us the events of the next day, which is Monday, 7 April, AD 32, or four days before the cross of Jesus. It says, now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat from you, fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. As this day ended, Mark records that when evening had come, they went out of the city. 
This, according to the biblical calendar, would have been the start of the new day. This then was the beginning of Tuesday, 8 April AD 32, or three days before his cross. Remember this, that it is the same day because biblical days go from evening to evening. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. After this, Jesus speaks the parable of the wicked vine dressers, and he's challenged by the Pharisees as to whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. On the same day, the Sadducees came to him and asked him about the resurrection, and a scribe came forward and asked him, what is the first of all of the commandments? And if that wasn't enough for one day, he took time to proclaim his own deity in a veiled manner by quoting the 110th Psalm. Here's what he says. Then Jesus answered and said while he was in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes are saying that the Messiah is going to be of the line of David, meaning he's going to be a human being. Jesus goes on, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, this may not make a lot of sense unless you go to the Old Testament and see that when it says Lord the first time, the Lord, that's Jehovah, God Almighty. And then he said to my Lord, and he uses the term Adonai in Hebrew, which is a term only used of God in the Old Testament when we speak about God. So Jehovah is saying to God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How could God be a descendant of David? So now you understand why I brought in the incarnation. Without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it is not possible to understand what is going on here and what his role was in his mission and how it was going to come about. After this, after him saying this, Jesus warned the people to beware of the scribes. And then he took time to compliment a poor widow who gave out of her poverty demonstrating that despite the small size of her offering, it was of more value than the great and expensive gifts of all of the wealthy people who had come. All of these are recorded in Mark chapter 12, but there is still more to this Tuesday before the cross. And 
it encompasses all of chapter 13 of Mark as well. I'll read you just a couple verses from it. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these will be fulfilled? After asking this of Jesus, he spends the next 32 verses of the chapter giving us the great prophetic passages which have become known as the Olivet Discourse. The word Olivet comes from the Mount of Olives, and he gives this discourse up there on that mountain. What Jesus says there is recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Mark, and it's recorded in Luke. And his words in those three accounts telescope between the destruction of Israel in AD 70 and the tribulation period, which is still future to us, which are the last seven years before his physical return to earth. Maybe because it was such a full day and so much occurred on that day that the four gospels are completely silent about what happened the following day, which was Wednesday, 9 April of AD 32. Wednesday is like the calm before the storm. Nothing is recorded, everything is quiet. The world is waiting in anticipation of what is ahead. And Mark chapter 14 opens with these words. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. After two days is from the last recorded event, which was on Tuesday. This then is the 14th day of the month of Nisan, or Thursday, which is the Passover, 10 April, AD 32. It is the day before Jesus' cross. Jesus Christ had almost accomplished, accomplished his mission, but the trials of the hours ahead are more dramatic, they are more painful, and they are more glorious than anything that has occurred since God created the world. And that brings us to our third thought today, the cross of Jesus Christ. I was typing the sermon on Monday, having forgot that Palm Sunday was today, so I actually had to do this sermon a week in advance instead of four weeks in advance like I normally do. And I was putting down all my thoughts in order of how things went sequentially during his Passion Week. And I came to this thought, the third one, and I typed the words, the cross of Jesus Christ. And I broke into tears. And I cried for about five minutes. And I asked out loud, Lord, did you really do this for me? It's the most humbling thing in the world to think that God would send his son to pay the debt that I owe. The account for Thursday, 10 April, AD 32, continues in the book of Mark. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why this fragrant oil is wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial of her. 
and 2,000 years later, we're still remembering what she did on that night. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, as you're reading commentaries about the Bible, you will get scholars, naysayers that say, well, this is a contradiction because it says that six days before the Passover, he was anointed with the oil. And then the night before his crucifixion, he was anointed with the oil. They are in separate houses. One was in the house of Lazarus, and one of them is in the house of Simon the leper. At one time, she anointed his feet with oil. She was showing herself to be the servant of her Lord. Out of all of the people, it seems that only Mary understood what was happening and what her role in it was. And then, on the day before his cross, which she knew was coming, it, she didn't just open and pour some on his feet, she broke the bottle and she poured it all on his head, anointing him for his burial and as a, almost a prophecy, the prophets and the priests and the king of Israel were anointed with oil in acknowledgement of their uh, right to fulfill those positions. And Jesus Christ fulfills all of those positions in the ultimate sense. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. What we just read was from Mark 14, 11. The next verse brings us to the day of Jesus' cross. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? The first day of unleavened bread is the 15th day of the month of Nisan, and it was 11 April of AD 32, according to our calendar. On this day, which started at sundown, Jesus sat with his disciples and he ate the Passover meal with them. During that meal, he told his disciples that he would be betrayed by one of them. He also washed their feet and he revealed many things to them. The Gospel of John gives us most of the information of what was said during that meal. And one of the most startling things that Jesus said, what he revealed to them was something that they should have already known, but they were dull just like so many of us, just like me. And he needed to say it again as clearly as possible. He said here, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. After them, him telling them who he was, he promised that he would not leave them alone, but would send the Comforter, or the Holy Spirit, who remains with us even to this day, 2,000 years later, as a deposit or a guarantee of the glory that all who call on the name of Jesus Christ will receive. And then in a resounding shout of victory, he gave triumphant worlds, words to a world that was waiting in anticipation of what he had to say. But before we read those words, I want to go back and I want to read you a paragraph that I said earlier. Jesus did not inherit Adam's sin, and so he was qualified to replace Adam. He went through the same temptations that Adam did, and he prevailed over them. He beat the devil at that game. All he would need to do is keep the law. If he did, he would be 
he wouldn't just be qualified, he will have prevailed. And at the Last Supper, Jesus proclaimed his victory. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He knew that the victory was his, despite what was coming, he had prevailed and he had overcome the world. His obedience would be rewarded. It would be rewarded with a cross and it would be rewarded with his death. And three days later, it would be rewarded with the resurrection, the ultimate sign of the victory of God in Jesus Christ. After that same meal, Jesus took his disciples and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in his time of human frailty, he looked forward to the trial ahead and he suffered what must have been unimaginable anguish. Luke tells us about it. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives and as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Moments after this, the leaders of Israel took Jesus through a night of interrogation and abuse. And we know exactly where that led to. It read, led right to the cross of Calvary. Jesus' life was given to reconcile us to God. Maybe now you can see why I brought in the, arc, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There was this infinite gap between an infinite God and a finite man. And thus there was a need for an infinite bridge to span that gap. If Jesus were only a man, well, a man is finite. But because he is both man and God, he can place his divine hand on his Father, who is infinitely separated from us. And he can put his human hand on each one of us. And he can mediate between the two. And when he does, he grants us his Holy Spirit. And he seals us for the day of redemption. And he can lead us to the place that he has promised each one of us. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ died to pay the debt that each one of us owes. And his death is what paves the way back to the Father. His last words on the cross are revealed in John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The words, it is finished, come from a single Greek word, tetelestai. In essence, it means paid in full. When Jesus died, he satisfied God's infinite justice for anyone who will simply accept what he has done. The sins of the people of God can never be punished again because that would violate God's own justice. 
What each person here needs to realize is that sins can only be punished one time, either by a substitute, meaning Jesus, or by oneself. If you want to pay for your own sins, then God's justice demands an infinite penalty be executed upon you. The other option is to hand your sins over to Jesus Christ and let him be your substitute. Because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this infinite penalty was satisfied infinitely in God's own son. Jesus, the prince of life and the author of salvation, was coming near to the cross with each new day. It was from his mighty hand that came all of creation and his father's will is what he was determined to obey. On Saturday, six days before his cross, he came to Bethany to the house of Lazarus. There he and Lazarus reclined as Martha did toil, serving them food as they ate and talked. And Mary poured on his feet the costly oil because by faith was the way that Mary walked. With her hair, she wiped his feet and oh, the smell of the room was so beautifully sweet. Jesus rode the colt of a donkey the next day while the masses cried out, Hosanna, save now. They were looking for a king to pave their way and he was there, but they missed him somehow. They called out, blessed be the name of the Lord. But in a few more days, they call out a different word. The next day at the temple, Monday it was, Jesus first cursed a barren fig tree. And then all of the people were surely abuzz. He cleared the temple, giving the merchants the third degree. This house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so the leaders looked for accusations, bundling charges as if bundling sheaves. On Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree. It was dried up from the roots and as dead as can be. Rulers came to him, the priests, the scribes, and the elders too, and asked many questions. They thought they were so smart. But Jesus answered every one through and through. Wonderful knowledge our Lord did impart. Many other things Jesus did on this day, and his wisdom was displayed for all who came his way. On Wednesday, the gospels are silent about what occurred. Nothing is recorded there for us to heed. And so we continue on undeterred to Thursday. To Holy Thursday we proceed. On Thursday it was the Passover and a plot was afoot. The priests and scribes sought how they might put him to death. They were afraid their authority would go kaput if he was allowed even one more day's breath. And so came Friday, the day of the cross. It was the day that my Lord died. But the day was a victory and not a loss as the blood poured out of my Savior's side. It is finished. The debt has been paid and in, my gra in the grave my Lord has been laid. Now fallen man can be reconciled to God and now heavenly streets we too can trod. Jesus, who died on the cross of Calvary, shed his blood after an obedient life. He died for lost souls, including you and me. He died to purchase a pure and spotless wife. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Jesus, we thank you for what he did that we could not do ourselves. And he made the bridge back to you possible for any who will simply ask for it. Just call on you as Lord and say, I can't save myself and I know that I need a redeemer. And I know that my redeemer lives because he came out of the grave to prove who he is and that he did exactly what he came to do to reconcile us back to you, oh God. And we thank you for that gift. And I pray for anybody here who has never simply called on Jesus Christ as Lord and savior, and just hand their sins to him, that they will do it now, and they will be done with it, and they will be clean and free of eternal guilt in the presence of an infinite creator.
We love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.